0: Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu.
1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. Uh, I am John Lachowski. I'm president of the Institute. And uh, uh, I would like just to, for those of you who are new, Uh, To us, we are an independent graduate school, Uh, we offer five master's programs, we have a new doctoral program, the first of its kind in the United States, That we started offering at the beginning of this year. Uh, We have 17 graduate certificate programs and a faculty of scholar-practitioners who have done what they teach. Uh, and uh, a good half of our student body are mid-career professionals from relevant government agencies, armed forces, defense contractors, uh, NGOs, and so on. Um, it is a great pleasure for me to introduce our distinguished speaker, Colonel Dr. Larry Wartzel, today. Um, we, he is here as part of a series of lectures that we've been having on uh, Chinese strategic affairs. Um, and I commend your attention to some of the other lectures that we've had as part of this series. But it is a, a special treat for us to have Dr. Wartzel here, uh, who has uh, graced our classrooms in the past with his presence and analysis. And, uh, and we're very glad to have him back. Um, he, for those of you who don't know his background, he spent 32 years in the armed forces, the first uh, three years in the Marines, and then the next 29 in the Army. Uh, he has served uh, in a number of different capacities in his military career, in the infantry, in signals intelligence, in human intelligence, and in counterintelligence uh, as a strategist. Uh, he uh, was, uh, He served two tours of duty in Beijing as our military attache, and altogether some 12 uh, years in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, He's a graduate of the U.S. Army War College, uh, has a doctorate from the University of Hawaii, and uh, uh, he has been the director of the Strategic Strategic Studies Institute at the U.S. Army War College, uh, while also serving as a professor there of Asian Studies. After after retiring from the armed forces, uh, he became director of the Asian Studies Center and vice president for foreign policy and defense at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, He has written and edited something like 10 different books, uh, at least a couple of them on Chinese military affairs, and he is a member of the US-China Economic and Security Review Commission, uh, which, as if, for those of you who don't know, issues uh, one of the most important annual reports on the uh, on the on Chinese economic and, uh, and 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 military strategic developments. So, without further ado, we are honored to have Dr. Wartzel here, and uh, I'd like to turn the, uh, the podium over to him. Thank you so much. For that. Well, I appreciate that
0: uh, gracious introduction, John. I guess it's kind of a, it's a tough day to be here with uh, President Bush's funeral and the day of mourning, but uh, in some ways appropriate because he spent so much uh, of his own time in China and working with China, so kind can honor the guy. I, uh. I, I am on that China Commission, it's a Congressional Commission, uh, there's 12 commissioners appointed by the leadership of the uh, House and Senate, uh, and, and I'm going to give you a little, if I could, of some of the flavor of the parts of this year's annual report that deal with the Belt and Road Initiative and China's marketer strategy. but. My words are mild, They're, you know, I, I, I will give you my perspective to the best I can, and uh, then we'll try and take some time for questions and answers, and I have, I, I try to do this mostly with maps, and we'll see how this works. If, if, oh, it Okay. Uh, I, the points I like to make, uh, it, I mean, it's kind of a historical orientation, but everybody sort of, even, even the People's Republic of China sort of positions itself and says, you know, all of this and all of this are ours. That wasn't always the case. Uh, in 221 B.C., the Qin Dynasty was around here. And that's important to remember, Uh, in 220 A.D., roughly in the same area, you had three kingdoms warring and fighting with each other. Uh, by, By 111 B.C. to 931 A.D., China had annexed most of northern Vietnam, several invasions. Uh, pushed back a couple of times, different dynasties came and went, and the size of China shrank. Uh, I I think probably the the Mongols were a real high point, 1231 to 1259, and China for a period goes all the way out around here. And then shrinks again. Uh, I'll cover it as we go on, but the Yuan dynasty, and those guys were... uh, uh, also, that was the Mongols. Uh, the invasion was 1231 to 1259. From 1271 on, uh, China was ruled by uh, a Mongol dynasty and uh, invaded Burma, Korea, Vietnam, Russia, Sakhalin, or island, Laos, and Japan. So if, if anybody knows... Uh, A little bit of Japanese history, the the, uh, divine wind uh, that pushed the Chinese back and prevented an invasion uh, is part of that. The the biggest, and I'll cover this as we go along, but the biggest feature of the Yuan dynasty is Zhang He, uh, who was, um, he was a eunuch. uh, from 1405 to 1433, he made seven expeditions and literally traveled all the way out, down, and around India and around the world. I, I think the point I'd like to make on that is, uh, if you read contemporary Chinese history, you hear this stuff about you know, a peaceful, non-expansive kingdom. That is not the case. It was always expanding and contracting. And it wasn't peaceful. And when Jung Ha, on some of his expeditions, he had 300 ships, 27,000 men, several thousand cavalry, lots of guns. So when he pulled up uh, to a port uh, in, in Malaysia and said, hey, can we trade? You didn't have much choice. You did not have a lot of choice, and and, and it's just a point I like to make, and I'm just going to move forward to it. Uh, This focuses it down a little, gives you a little idea of uh, uh, where we're talking about in China uh, and the neighboring countries, and uh, I, I really like to take the time to orient people to the areas we're talking about because it's where China exercises most of its influence. Now, Deng Xiaoping, uh, several times in the leadership, but in 1978, uh, it, particularly if you, if you, you, know, if you read uh, Mike Pillsbury's uh, book, The 100-Year Marathon, you'll see that Deng's theme was uh, hide your capabilities, hide your brightness. Remain obscure, bide your time, and build your strength. And I think I think Dr. did a great job on that. Uh, but he he, I just want to take a second to show you what China's sphere of influence looked like then, because uh, they were really interested at that point in time in. Trying to secure footholds inside this first island chain. For any of you interested, this is out of the Department of Defense reports or it's on the Commission's report. You can find this anywhere. And then gradually increase naval capabilities to deny or deter the United States or any other aggressor, but it's really directed at us in Japan, out to the second island chain. And why is that? Taiwan. Uh, One of the interesting dates that I haven't mentioned yet is 1661, ended Dutch rule in Taiwan, and then for less than a, I think, 20 year period, uh, the Chinese were on Taiwan and then retreated. They were pushed back. But uh, there was an awful lot of migration there, but a lot of this is about what they consider to be their territorial claims uh, and, and really about Taiwan. Let's jump ahead to today. Xi Jinping. Uh, he is focused on this idea of a century of humiliation uh, and building a strong army and a strong country. And, uh, he, is, I mean, you, you, you don't even have to read any Chinese because all this stuff is published by the Communist Party in English, but he's laid out his goals. He wants a modernized military that can use data links, data systems, ships, aircraft, and missiles that can exchange target information by 2035, and they're on the road to that. They're having some trouble because... They have trouble recruiting uh, people that can handle that much technology. So information technology systems and the people who use them are a problem. Then he wants a world-class military by 2050, one that can uh, do a lot of the things the United States can do, challenge other countries around the world. Uh, But his number one focus is on preserving Communist party rule. And and I, I guess I'll make the point here that the People's Liberation Army, which includes the ground forces, the Navy, the Air Force, the rocket forces, the cyber and electronic warfare strategic support force, uh, it is not a national army. It's a party army. It is the army of the Chinese Communist Party, and its job is number one job is to preserve Communist Party rule. And then finally, that last bullet really gets down to um, the theme today: the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, but I, I want to make a couple of short points about the century of humiliation and, and why it plays so heavily in uh, both Xi Jinping and the Communist Party's rhetoric. Uh, the Opium War is in 1842; China lost Hong Kong. Extraterritorial areas were established up and down the coast. Countries really functioned as they would. Uh, the dynasties lost power in 1856 and 1860. An Anglo-French naval force burned the emperor's summer palace. And let me go back here. That's what I want. And. Uh, the Chinese southern fleet was destroyed by the French. Completely. Uh, There was another Franco-Chinese war in 1884-85. China lost Vietnam as one of its vassal states. Uh, The Sino-Japanese War of 1894-1895. World powers Pressured Japan to pull back, but at the time Japan only had seven infantry divisions and a good fleet, and it only used four infantry divisions and t- took all of Korea, all of eastern China, and Taiwan. Uh, they all ended up pulling back, but keeping Korea and Taiwan till the end of World War II, really. Uh, the, the Boxer Rebellion in 1900, if anybody's ever seen, you know, 55 Days in Peking is a classic. Uh, eight foreign armies, including the United States, the Russians, the Italians, the British, the Indians with the British, the Japanese, marched from uh, Tianjin, about 90 miles to Beijing, uh, actually, I mean, the regiment I was in, in the Army, the 9th U.S. Infantry, uh, was uh, the regiment that took all the silver from the Emperor's silver armory outside Tianjin, and it sits, it, uh, the Ingus sit melted into a giant punch bowl in the regimental headquarters to this day. And every officer that goes into that regiment toasts him with one of those silver cups. But the army has quite a history there. The Marines uh, were there. Uh, The creation of Manchukuo in 1931, the Japanese, on a pretext, reinvaded, created a separate empire up here. And then, uh, of course, you got the Sino Japanese War breaks out in uh, 1937 for the Chinese, and China took over the majority. I mean, Japan took over the majority of China. Let go forward again to good old Xi Jinping. The other point you'll find uh, made in all Chinese history books, and that she will make all the time, is the need for strict party control in China. And I, I just want to cover a few of the religious rebellions that various uh, dynasties in China have faced. Uh, 184 AD, a Taoist sect uh, had a Yellow Turban rebellion. Uh, 1620, there was an anti Ming dynasty rebellion. The White Lotus Rebellion in 1796 was a Buddhist group uh, rebelling against the Manchus. The Taiping Rebellion is probably the most interesting. Uh, Hung Xiuquan, a millennial Christian, uh, uh, had a vision and decided that he was uh, Jesus Christ's brother. And he formed an army uh, in 1851 to 1864. Uh, Mm -hmm. 20 to 50 million dead in that rebellion. Marched all the way up the Chinese coast. Uh, I talked a little bit about the Boxer Rebellion in 1899 to 1901. You had the Cultural Revolution, uh, probably 65 to 76. And then, you know, I was personally there for the Tiananmen Massacre, which was a pretty big upheaval. Uh, So when, when when you see the Communist Party and party leaders railing against uh, what they see as organized religious groups, house churches. Uh, it, it comes out of this shared historical experience that's reinforced in Communist Party histories and in schools, which only teach Communist Party histories, uh, about this, uh, these upheavals. Now, let me, let me move to what we're talking about today. This is Xi Jinping's vision of a uh, one belt, one road. Uh, It's a little bit confusing because you would think the road is on land, but the road is a maritime road. And it goes all the way out into Oceania and Latin America, uh, throughout and up into Europe. Uh, quite a foothold in Greece, by the way. Uh, at, at Chinese buying ports. Uh, if you looked, I think I have a global projection here. Oh, right well, let's just look at this. This I mentioned the seven voyages of chung uh, He. You can see where they went. They all originated, and I've been to the Argentine, it's a pretty interesting place. Uh, but you can see all of these places he went. And then at the same time, you had the ancient Silk Road that ran from Saudi Arabia and really what is now Iran all the way across to Tianjin. But a couple of main points. So what, what you really see here is uh, Xi Jinping's vision of restoring this greatness. A- and China was, at that time, a tre- tremendous trading nation. It was a suzerain state. It had vassal states around Asia, including Japan and Korea at one time, certainly Vietnam. But uh, his vision is to restore that. Now, if you can envision a map of the world, a Mercator projection of the world, and put Asia in the center and extend it all the way out to the west uh, that, and east, the, uh, it, there's what's called one access by the Chinese and two wings to this idea of the Belt Road Initiative or One Belt, One Road. The western wing is uh, primarily Africa and the Middle East, uh, but it it extends up through the Mediterranean. The uh, access is throughout Asia, and it includes road and rail and gas and infrastructure projects that extend all the way down through Vietnam, through Thailand, uh, through Burma and Malaysia, to Singapore. So it's, a, it's an extensive network. And then the eastern wing is right in our neighborhood. It, it, it captures part of Oceania, but it's uh, Mexico and Latin America. So it's, it's a, a vision, really, for the world. Uh, the Chinese so far have invested Uh, Well, they've won $135 billion in projects. They've projected to invest up to $900 billion, almost a trillion dollars. But I'll just give you an idea of where some of them are going. Uh, Israel got $10 billion in projects. And Israel and China have a very long trading relationship. Uh, if you, uh, I mean, at the end of World War II, there was uh, a gentleman by the name of Shaul Eisenberg who was a Russian Jew that escaped to Shanghai and uh, was interned by the Japanese in a Japanese prison camp. So he grew up speaking Russian, Hebrew, and by the time World War II came about. Chinese. Then he learned Japanese. And at the end of World War II, when Japan was defeated, Shaw Eisenberg moves back to Shanghai, China, and starts a major trading company. Uh, some of it was in edible foods. Some of it was in gems. He took all the scrap steel out of China and reimport, out of Japan and reimported it to China to build up an army that eventually defeated and the Republic of China, uh, and eventually he emigrated to Israel. Now, there was a period, uh, during, I would say, uh, the 79, I guess, really, uh, the, the height of it was 79, uh, to 89, 88, where uh, we sort of looked the other way, the United States did, on <coughs> Israeli military assistance to China. We were doing it ourselves. We sold uh, artillery ammunition lines. We sold artillery radars. We sold uh, jet aircraft and combat aircraft. And the idea was we were cooperating together against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. And at the same time, it was after the Vietnam War. So the United States was not in at all interested in getting back into a war in asia particularly over thailand but the vietnamese have massed a bunch of divisions on the thai border so we were very happy to look the other way as the chinese army got stronger Uh, i mean i can tell you that uh, uh, the radars uh, in u.s airborne early warning aircraft were shared with China by the Israelis the um, uh, 105 millimeter gun on our tanks, the laser range finder for our tanks, the part of the radars for the F-16. Now today, that's not so critical because the Chinese are really good about cyber warfare, and they're getting that stuff by penetrating companies. Uh, but that's how they got it, and, and we, we sort of accepted it. Uh, Malaysia ends up with uh, six billion dollars but despite this broad vision and the amount of money that's committed to it, they are doing so well and uh, Malaysia actually cancelled one of its contracts already and other countries are cancelling contracts. So it's uh, it's a big vision, it's an expansive vision. The biggest is the China-Pakistan economic corridor. And that, of course, runs all the way across. Let's see if I can go back to my original map, and I think we'll get a better look at it. Right. So it runs all, all the way across China into Pakistan. Uh, that particular project uh, has a commitment from China of $62 billion right now and could go up to as high as $156 billion. but again, serious problems there. Sri Lanka. Uh, has a debt, because of BRI projects, Belt and Road Initiative projects, of $60 billion, of which $6 billion is owed to China. Uzbekistan-China cooperation in here, uh, is, at this point, at uh, $15 billion, Kazakhstan, China, $37 Why so much in Kazakhstan? Lots of oil and gas here. So that if it ever came to a conflict uh, with Japan and the United States that resulted in the Chinese uh, military being blockaded and unable to use the Straits of Malacca or, or the Lombok and Sunda, they're hoping that What they're developing through Pakistan, through Burma, out of Kazakhstan and from Russia would help fuel whatever they might need uh, in the event of that. I'm going to just take a minute or two to talk about how many Chinese are out there around the world and and a little bit about what they're doing. Uh, And they're having trouble. They were, and I'm quoting you from yesterday's South China Morning Post, 86,000 cases in 2017 where Chinese consulate officials had to help PRC citizens, either tourists or traders or part of this Belt and Road Initiative. The U.S., in its consular presence overseas, has one consular officer for every 6,000 citizens. That doesn't mean everywhere you go you're going to find a consular officer. If you're out in the middle of the boondocks, you're going to have to get to where the consulate is. But it's pretty good representation. China has one consular officer around the world for every 190,000 of its travelers. So if you're out there, you're not getting a lot of help. Uh, There's not a lot of help. Uh, it, it says 156, 158 uh, billion uh, outward investment from China in that. Uh, there are 30,000 People's Republic of China businesses. Some are state-owned enterprises. Some are provincial enterprises. Some are local enterprises. There are actually a few private enterprises. 30,000 firms have overseas operations under the Belt and Road Initiative around the world. That is a massive presence. And uh, 100 million PRC citizens are traveling abroad every year. That's That's a lot of people. Some are tourists. I mean, I have gone I have gone to a restaurant in, if you ever been to Cancun, not down the peninsula but in the city with my wife and a couple we were traveling with, sat down in a restaurant and ran into groups of 20 30 Chinese tourists. It's just, you wouldn't believe it. I, I, the last time I was in Hawaii, I was at the Hilton Hawaiian Village, uh, really on business. And the whole tower was, it used to be filled with Russian tourists. Now it's all Chinese tourists. So, so they, they, there's money there, they're traveling all around the world. Now, one question that invariably comes up when you start talking about Belt and Road Initiative is. Uh, Is the People's Liberation Army out there around these BRI points developing bases and projecting power? And and the answer to that, for the most part, is no. Uh, The Chinese have built a base in Djibouti. They will probably build a base up uh, at Guadar in Pakistan, but the other places, for the most part, are uh, refueling points, uh, places to stop in, fun, uh, ports funded through the Belt and Road Initiative, and they are not protected by the People's Liberation Army. Dubai, I mean uh, Djibouti is. There's a garrison there. These other places are protected, for the most part, by either uh, demobilized uh, People's Liberation Army soldiers, demobilized <coughs> officers of the Public Security Bureau, the National Police, or demobilized officials of the Ministry of State Security. And I'll just rattle off a couple of the companies that are operating around the world. Uh, one is China's Overseas Security Group, and it really is a conglomerate of 20 different companies—some state-owned, some actually private—in China that will provide security, armed security services with trained ex-military people uh, around the world. Uh, our own Eric Prince, who had Blackwater, is helping train some. Uh, there's another. British uh, Chinese company, cost services, China Overseas Security Services, based on Queensway in Hong Kong. You ever been to Queensway? And, and this stuff's very common. It, 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 it's a bunch of old uh, uh, MI6 people uh, from British intelligence and former British military special ops guys, and Chinese intelligence and special ops guys. They got together and, uh, in a very entrepreneurial way, offer security services around the world for these hundred million traveling people. But but I can I, I can only say that um, there's a lot of conspiracy theory going around here in the United States. Uh, the last big one was uh, about East Africa and where they're was the people in the Liberation Army there. The one before that is, are they in the Panama Canal? And the answer to that is no. Uh, And and it's no because you just don't see travel back and forth. You don't see the forms of official military visits that it would take to keep up uh, uh, that kind of deployed military force. But they are people with strong connections to Chinese intelligence uh, and to the security structure in the military in China. Uh, The We Group uh, is another one, and that's one of the ones that Eric Prince helped form. Uh, There are 5,000 separate security companies in China, blackwater-type places, with over 4.5 billion employees. And the Chinese just downsized their army by another 300,000 people. So all these people need work, and that's what they're going to do. They're trained to use weapons. If you're in China, you would probably, and, and leading China, you would probably have rather have all these people that know how to use weapons, employed doing that, than dissatisfied because they're unemployed in China. That's what happened there in Tiananmen. A bunch of people that were not in the military uh, really created quite a disturbance. Uh, I, I, I just feel it, it, it's really important to make those points. Uh, Greece is a really interesting case here. Uh, primarily because uh, they're worried about Russian influence, the Greeks are, and uh, you know, with the, I mean, there's there are some close connections between Greek and Russian Orthodox uh, churches. The, they, um, they've, I mean, Russia's closer, so they prefer this Chinese influence. But it 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 really is quite a problem for NATO because, as you see, countries whether it's Turkey or Greece, thinking about buying Chinese weapons, That those weapons come with arms, uh, in, instructors, packages, people that will have to integrate those weapon systems with NATO weapon systems, and, and, and it's a real technology problem for the United States. And it can be done. We're doing it for Vietnam. We have companies working with Vietnam to create kind of a hedgehog against China that are taking the Russian systems and uh, radars and missiles, and we're helping them out to integrate those with United States uh, weapon systems and data. So it, it can be done. It's not a simple challenge. But it does present a problem for us. I, I don't have... I guess maybe Does that first map cover the whole world? No. what I don't have on here is um, Latin America. Uh, If you've ever been to Nicaragua, uh, there's a huge lake uh, in central Nicaragua. The Chinese have a project, a BRI project, to augment the Panama Canal and build a new canal uh, linking, linking really to the Pacific and the Atlantic uh, going through that lake. Uh, they've taken advantage of the ideological uh, governments, leftist governments in Venezuela, uh, obviously Cuba, and uh, they're developing bases there. Probably in Cuba, they've taken over the old Russian uh, intelligence uh, uh, intercept station. So they're out there. But I I just want to. I guess I'm going to open it up for a few questions. We got about 15 minutes left. But I want to emphasize that um, uh, these guys aren't 10 and 20 feet tall. They do face serious economic problems uh, because of what they've they've done. They've reduced their own. uh, foreign reserves by over a trillion dollars and they have up to 14 trillion. US dollars in uh, domestic loans supporting a lot of this stuff so it, it, if you read some of the economists and I'm not one uh, you'll see that uh, it's is at least precarious this is this this vision of Xi Jinping is not a foregone conclusion. And I guess I'll probably try and start from the, first of all, if you're a student here, you get the first question. So if you're a student and you have one, put your hand up. Yes. Um, so I have a question about um, how the standards by the that kind of region. So if China and Russia were both kind of competing for influence in the same region, Region, um, do you see that exacerbating the conflict,
1: or um, leading to a conflict, or is that a relationship too strong?
0: Uh, the uh, Shanghai Cooperative Organization is really the um, organization that helps mediate the tensions between China and Russia over uh, Southwest Asia, or I'm sorry, over the, the Central Asian republics. Now. I'm going to go back to a strategic point like I was at the Army War College. This was all part of Russia. So, and the Russians have very poor strategic lines of communication and ability to project military power out to the west. And they're rebuilding it. So there's only one main railroad, there's only one main pipeline uh, there's only one main road system. So they're worried about this area. Here, they're still using Kazakhstan to build transporter, erector, launchers for their missiles and land their astronauts. Or, I'm sorry, yeah, their astronauts. So uh, this is really Russia's backyard and the entire infrastructure of roads, rails, Pipelines was developed by Russia. They are very sensitive to Chinese immigration. And the Chinese are aware of that, aware of that sensitivity. I, I mean, I hope that helps. Yeah, well, Thank you. Yeah. Would you mind talking to us a bit about uh, increased Chinese Chilean economic and military cooperation? It's not new. Uh, it, it, it started uh, a couple of decades ago. Uh, and it uh, revolved around space and today's space situational awareness. Uh, The whole space structure in China uh, and the architecture is run by the strategic support force of the People's Liberation Army. So if you see folks down there doing that, there's probably a military involvement. Uh, But I, I don't... Again, I don't see lots of Chinese military folks showing up, but that what I said about Chile also is true for Argentina and Brazil. And, and it's mostly space architecture, uh, telecommunications, satellite communications. Does that yeah. help you? Go ahead. Uh, so, how is uh, the mass incarceration of uh, millions of people in occupied East Turkestan, or what the Chinese call Xinjiang? Uh, uh, and the of region affect, uh, US uh, strategy Well, let me back up a little bit. Um, because I, I think an interesting point to make is the, um, the United States, I, I mean, people disagree with me, but I would argue, does not have a lot of strategic interest here. I mean, we have some short term interests. Uh, uh, we're using some of these areas and getting a cooperation in some of these areas to still conduct a war here and here. Uh, but it, it's it's really, it, it all of that went back to part of the Soviet Union. It would be a huge crisis for China. It would be a huge diplomatic crisis and a crisis at the United Nations. From a, But from a military strategic standpoint, not too much of a problem. I mean, that's, that's just my view. Now, if you extend that over here into Xinjiang, the question you really have to ask is, uh, why isn't Turkey taking a stronger stand? It, these are primarily Turkic peoples. Uh, and, and I would say uh, they're looking for a hedge, really, because they've never really been part of Europe. They've never really felt they were part of NATO. Uh, they get a lot of pressure for the United States. Uh, China helps them out because they're hoping, uh, and helps uh, Iran and, and Pakistan, uh, because they're hoping they won't do anything further to radicalize the Uyghurs. Uh, I, I mean, the Chinese are just admitting that all those Uyghurs are in prison. Uh, and they're doing uh, in uh, Xinjiang... What they did in uh, Tibet. It's not completely done in Tibet, but it's brutal. It's re education. It's the equivalent of concentration camps and learn a new language and give up your religion. Um, uh, I I have to say, for better or worse, I I am uh, a a foreign policy and foreign interest. Pragmatists, you you cannot have a one-issue foreign policy. You cannot let your entire foreign policy hinge on one thing. You have to look at a range of national interests, a range of investments. Uh, so I don't. I I think there'll be a lot of condemnation. I think there'll be action in the United Nations, uh, Human Rights Commission by a lot of countries. But I don't see that the United States is going to. I don't think reorient its foreign policy because of what's happening to the Uyghurs, and I don't deny it. What's happening to the Uyghurs, nor do I think that'll happen because of house churches, and the problem that the, the pressure they're putting on Christians. Yes. Sir.
1: Okay. In that same vein, you've got uh, the Beltway moving on in toward Afghanistan. I understand the Chinese just put a, a small air force up there. Um, In
0: Afghanistan? I'm not aware
1: of that. I I just heard that down from Cato in the last couple days. But what what you're looking at is this beltway straddling a whole bunch of really unhappy Muslims. Yes. And roads go both ways. Now, From my position, I'm looking, is there any way we can schlep off Afghanistan on the Chinese and walk away?
0: Okay, everybody <laughs> get up there and talk to the president.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I, I mean, we we are essentially protecting their strategic lines of communication through Afghanistan and Pakistan with our forces. Well, not in here, yeah, but through Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, To a certain extent, uh, part of Pakistan, uh, and I I, I question the wisdom of that. I I will say that, Uh, from my policy, from my perspective, I would love to see the Chinese have to handle that all by themselves and face the problems that the British face, and the Russians face, and that we're facing. So. I don't disagree. There's a young man back there, yes. yes sir, uh, you mentioned how the PLA isn't necessarily uh, protecting, overly or otherwise
1: protecting the infrastructure that they're developing along the BRI. but considering the dual use possibilities of the
0: infrastructure, you know, the building ports that are, have significant draft and uh, bases that have significant room for airfields and stuff, what are the implications of that and, and specifically what do you think what kind of events would drive China to call the PLA in to protect its infrastructure along the way? Well, they've or, done it twice. Or to use it. Yeah, they, know, they've done, done it true. twice. They, I mean, I don't have Egypt up there. Maybe that other map will have a good shot at Egypt. I don't think it does. Oh, yes. So they've had to run, you know what the NEO is? You? Yes, sir. Yeah, okay. Non-combatant. Evacuation operations and had to run DOs uh, in, in Egypt and in Africa, and to do that, uh, they really had a hard time. They they were able to use a few um, military aircraft, a couple of ships that were deployed uh, up in here on um, in a piracy operations. Uh, And they've had 21, it might be up to 24 now, uh, naval task forces uh, out and around uh, that area, the Horn of Africa. The thing is, uh, they can't do it all the time. And their other problem today is that although they just uh, really reorganized their military along a joint staff system, the uh, joint staff Headquarters Operations Department retains control of all of the deployed forces, so they can't do the things that we can do with our uh, unified commands around or specified commands around the world. Uh, I mean, they've reoriented. They have one uh, theater; they call them theaters of war, That is oriented out here. Have one oriented to the south, one to the east, one to the north, and one central as a strategic reserve and to protect China. We still don't know. None of us know that following China closely. How far those lines of control extend? It's pretty clear that the southern theater of war has primacy in the South China Sea, and the eastern theater of war... Has primacy around Taiwan and the Northern would have it out here, reinforced by others. But what we don't know (laughs) is how we we know where the US Indo Pacific Command Standard of Operations is. We have no idea that yet for the Chinese. And I I hope that helps respond. Yes.
1: Yes. how do you see the digital road, because China's invested a lot right. in their plan for AI and robotics and all this stuff. So how do you see the digital road integrating with the... You
0: know, on, on the commission, we actually have uh, both a, a wonderful report done by, oh, I don't remember the name, Sosi. Uh, that's a that's yeah. couple 300 pages. Okay. And we've got a big section. And, and I, I ran with uh, Mike Wessel or hearing issue on that topic and and it's kind of mixed um first of all they remain as we found out uh, from zte very dependent on us uh for a lot of the components so that they they could be crippled Uh, the battle i don't see and i disagree with some of my colleagues on the commission i don't see the battle for getting uh 5g and the internet of things Globally or nationally, first as of much significance. Uh, I, I mean, ain't nobody and no company in the U.S. is going to move to Chengdu, China, because it has ubiquitous 5G and in the Internet of Things, right? Uh, but uh, the problem is with standards. If you if you are able to establish the international standards right. for the systems, then a lot of other companies have to conform to those standards so if you i mean if you remember the television things if you if you had well we had one tv okay if you went to japan our tvs wouldn't work if you went to china japanese and u.s tvs wouldn't work nor would it work in europe uh, by, I would say, my second tour of duty in China started in 1995. It's a long time ago. I could buy a TV that worked anywhere. It cost me a grand instead of 300 bucks, but I could do it. And it was made in Japan. Uh, think about cell phones, you know, whether it's GSM. Or, uh, it, it's the same problem. Today, uh, I don't have it in my pocket. I have a Kyocera flip phone. You know, I, I'm still on flip phones. This military. I, I have an iPad, a tablet. But it's, you know, It works in 120 countries. I just made a trip to uh, Taiwan, Japan, Korea, and I didn't end up in China, but it was supposed to be China. Guess what four countries it won't work in? Those four. They'll work in 120 countries, but I can't use it there. I had to go into each country and run this. So uh, now I I bought an LG tablet about a month ago, and I asked that it be 4G capable because I wasn't going to pay Apple. That that LG tablet um, uh, literally will work anywhere, and it works on 4G data. So. If you establish the standards, you cause other co- countries to spend more money, but even that doesn't dominate the world. And I guess we have to cut it off here. I just received a signal because I had a class, so I, I appreciate very much being able to talk to you. I think for those of you that are students here, you are in a great school. And Dr. Lukoski said that they, you know you get taught by practitioners. You get taught by people that know. The academic side of the field, but have actually done that job out in the world. And I'll stay around for a few minutes if someone wants to follow up with questions. Thank you, John.